I'll introduce you as Daniel Harm, also known as Tree Crown Dreams, uh, an artist that I had met via Mark Twight many, many years ago. Uh, one of the things that I think I, I stumbled on was uh, your transmutations project. And I really, I think that was a while ago, but I really enjoyed that uh, kind of the, the Jordorowski type, you know, avant-garde sci-fi, like, it was something that I had never really seen before. Do you have like a, do you have something where you drew from like inspiration or did it come to you in a vision or was it just, you know, how, how did, how did this original project start for you? Yeah. Yeah. That's, that's a great question. A question I've been thinking about a lot these days this year marks about a full decade that I've been pursuing art and pursuing film full time in the sense of, right, we're alive, we exist, and every day we can choose where our energy and existence goes. And I've been putting all of my energy into art as much as possible. That's like kind of been my guiding principle. And there's been a lot of ups and downs through the process, but 10 years later, and I'm sure we'll get deeper into this as we, you know, get further into the podcast. As time goes by, it's a, it's a, it's an amazing experience to be able to look back and reflect and see how much you've grown or an individual has grown, whether it's yourself or someone you're close with. And I think that like really anything that you put your mind to, it really just takes time. I think so much more time and patience than people really give credit to see significant growth and to circle back around to your question about you know where do these ideas came come from I mean I can't claim total independence or authority on the visions that I have because we live in a time where we're saturated by input we're saturated by media and inspiration and you know I've always been into wild films and wild art anything that's pushing a threshold anything that really makes me say to myself, how the hell do they do that? You know, like, whoa, like anything that just really made like kind of suspended disbelief or, or put me in a state of awe, I guess that's the best way to put it. And yeah, for sure, like Yodorowsky, a major influence. And uh, I was first turned on to Yodorowsky around the same time that I decided to put my full effort into film. Though I'd say ultimately where my ideas came from was spending so much time in the mountains as a trail builder, which was a very mystical experience, just de facto, when you're alone in the wilderness for long periods of time, you're able to experience kind of like modalities of thought or consciousness or perception that you just can't obtain in a metropolis or a city or in civilization. It's just, it's just impossible. And and it was kind of through happenstance of my life that I ended up being a trail builder for a decade. And, you know, I definitely believe in like karma and, and kind of like cosmic machinations. And then I do think that just, I don't know, I, someone, you could just say it was luck. You could say it was serendipity. You can say it was synchronicity, but I really feel like I was, that was just what I was meant to do at that time is just to build trails in the mountains and spend a lot of time out there by myself. And, and I've always been a really imaginative kid, you know, like childhood is so far in the past and like, you know, I'm almost 40 years old and I, I 
I put a lot of work into not getting hung up on the past at all. And I, I look back in the last 40 years and even the real low points, I, I, I see with a lot of joy because it's equated to who I am now. And, and, and I'm really appreciative of where I'm at right now. But in childhood, I was always a daydreamer. I was always kind of like checked out of normal human life. Um, a lot of the, a lot of the kind of like the parade of society you know, our educational system, uh, sitting in a chair all day as a seven-year-old, it, it just never made sense to me. I always thought it was bullshit from a very young age. And my way of dealing with it was just through imagination and daydreaming and doodling and just kind of, yeah, just being in my own thoughts and my own imagination, which pissed off a lot of, you know, adults in my life, et cetera. But I'm really thankful that I never... I never let myself be totally beaten into submission by society. And I think that trail building and being out in the mountains by myself is where I really first began to just trust myself and to just trust the limits of existence and, and what you can do. And, and it took a while. It was really scary. It's like scary to go against the grain. You know, the world is just filled with haters these days. And, and if you're really like doing something outside the box, there's just no way for, anyone to do anything where everyone's going to like it. You know, you could be a saint and people are, and there's going to be a subgroup of people that are going to hate on you. Uh, so yeah, it's just been a process of just maturing and growing up and trusting life, trusting the people close to my life. And, and yeah, there's been a lot of learning lessons along the way. I wouldn't like change anything per se, but I'm definitely thankful that I've made mistakes and I've grown from it. Uh, that's kind of a lot, but I, I hope that gives you a bird's eye view <laughs> philosophically and we can get down to more details. Yeah, for sure. I know uh, like Rick Rubin, he, I don't know if, if he's an influence to you, but he's a creative kind of in, influence to me. He just has like little snippets and something you said about that was like, he says, you know, don't pay attention to the audience. You know, the audience doesn't mash, matter. It's the creation that matters to the artist. So you're basically... I, I can tell from looking at your art and your installations that you are creating this uh, homogeneously, you know, or, or not, you're basically creating this for what you want and then presenting it. And it's, uh, it, it, it's, it's refreshing, I think, as far as I don't think that we look at art as, uh, I don't know what the term would be, but the we we basically have turned our back on on avant garde art, where everything has to be a, a character, everything has to be content, and that's one of the things I know from doing a podcast. Is the first thing that I rebelled against was was content or this basic. Uh, you're just creating. Uh, fodder so <laughs> i think your art definitely i know like the first time that i had seen yodorowsky it, it, like holy mountain i think was the first thing i saw <laughs> and a lot of people didn't really get it and i didn't get it and still to this day i kind of don't get it but i appreciate that it exists and i think your art is the same way where where people see this this art integrated with nature and the trees and you have a base kind of ethos of this art where it's a, a conservation it's 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 
I can't remember your term for it, the ecotech, you know, and, and the costumes too. The costumes blow me away. Like, I don't know where the inspiration for this comes from and where and how you create these, but, you know, did, did these just, do you see a void and then fill it with, with this or, you know, where, where does the, the costuming and the, the performers and, and I'm going to definitely link to some of your, your installations because they're, they're very impressive. I mean, the, not just the filming of them, but the creation of them. So I, I definitely think that that's, uh, that's something that you have a knack for. So do you see your art in bridging this, this ecotech? Uh, do you think technology has a place in ecology and environmentalism? Yeah. Yeah, that's a excellent question. A lot to unpack there. Yeah, sorry about that. The, yeah, no, it, I. This is awesome, Ralph. I really appreciate you getting into the nuances of it, and it's always awesome because I've I've never I have I have yet to get very far in the world as far as people knowing my work. And part of that's been intentional. Part of that's been, as you said, like rebelling against the content or creating fodder. And I've never really been a fan of social media. I've tried to hack it a few times, but I honestly just don't care. I like making art and I'm the last 10 years was all about making wild, crazy art. And the cinematics involved were very rudimentary, right? I've had no, I had no formal training in cinematography. I never used nice cameras for anyone that knows about cameras. I did most of my work over the last 10 years with a Sony A7S2 and an old Mavic 2. They're really basic gear. And I put all of my energy into the vision of like set design and theatrics. I was a total high school theater geek. And, and just for reference, for anyone to just get a visual, my website, treecrowndreams.com, I put a lot of effort into recently because right now, as I'm looking into the next decade, I'm super pumped to work commercially and I have a stable job right now and I'm just dumping insane amount of money into super high level gear so I can bridge that gap. And I've, I've had a kind of a, a reckoning with myself that if I really want to take film to the level that I see myself capable of creating, I need to get more industry experience. I need to get the experience of what people are doing on Hollywood sets and Netflix sex, Netflix, Netflix sets. That's a little bit of a tongue twister, <laughs> maybe some subliminal things going on there, but yeah. So, <laughs> um, yeah, just kind of give you like, of like where I'm at personally in my life is, yeah. I mean, as far as the costumes go, yeah, a lot of it, most, my ethos back then was if I do all the hard work, all I have to do is invite people to show up. So, I mean, we're really talking everything and it was insane. And a lot of people said I was insane, like people close to my life. They're like, Dan, you're, you're a maniac. Like you're destroying yourself, but at the same time, you're doing phenomenal things that we never thought that you would be possible of doing. And, 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 but I, I say all that and I did have help. Absolutely. When, when I first started getting into art, right, I was, I was a bike racer for a while. That's how you know me. That's how Mark knows me. And, and I did it because 
in my teens, I had tons of rage and I needed an outlet, a positive outlet. And so I chose af- uh, athletics and that was a positive outlet a- outlet for me to figure out all, all this rage. How do I get rid of it? How do I channel it into something positive? And I've always been just like a very physical person. And bike, ra- bike racing was incredible. The culture didn't really set well with me. It was just a little bit too square, you know, a little bit too corporate, you know, sponsors, clean cut. And, and I loved, I loved the art life. I loved the art world. I loved the, the expression, just the raw expression, the risk, the, the, the experimentation, you know, the, the willingness to not have to be cookie cutter perfect and just to look messy and to just, just all these wild ideas. And at the time I was living in Capitol Hill in, in Seattle. I don't live there now. I just moved out to Mount Baker in Whatcom County, uh, close to the Canadian border. But for the last 10 years, I was living in Capitol Hill and I was really fortunate to live in the very center of it. It's the arts district. And, and I had friends that lived in like artist warehouse, uh, artist warehouses that through like wild shows. I think I first got turned on to art through the drag scene, through, uh, you know, like drag performance and, and just like two blocks away from my house, one of my best friends lived at this place that threw the wildest drag shows. And that was the first time that I ever had really seen like what it is to just fully express yourself in an environment where everyone is just open and raging and just partying and everyone's bringing a look and there's no shame. There's no, I'm sure if people were feeling shame or fear, but they were overcoming it enough to present themselves in the physical form. And so I say that my original inspiration for costumes was from the drag scene, like a hundred percent. And through that, through those parties and through that community, that's where I was like, okay, I'm just going to go for it. And I made my first film uh, way back in the day called Temple. And that was me just inviting my like close friends at the time to do this wild shoot with me. And they're all gung ho. And from that film, it kind of like circled around the Capitol Hill art scene. And I began to know other artists that were more established at that, you know, when I was making Temple, I didn't know other artists, you know, and what I mean by artists are people who have chosen to dedicate their entire life to art. And, and as I began to meet those people, I found peers to collaborate with. And as I got deeper into filmmaking, I was able to utilize these friends as uh, concept designers. And because I, I work really well with cinematic vision, but when it comes down to basic art skills like drawing, I can draw stick figures. I can't draw 3D. <laughs> uh, I, I, can, I can see in 3D, you know, but I, I, I can, it's embarrassing. It's so embarrassing. Like look at my storyboards, when you look at my original concepts, it looks like a third grader drew it. And it's, people would be like, how the hell can this guy create these crazy productions if all he can do is stick figures? But hey, you know, like, you can't be talented with everything. And luckily it takes a whole group of people. And that's what's so cool about film is the massive collaboration. And one friend in particular, Adam one, you know, at the time he would be willing on occasion to do concepts. So I would draw a stick figure of what I wanted a costume to look like. And then he would render it out in beautiful form and so accurate. And then I felt it was my duty to create a costume that was as accurate to his drawing as possible. And the first set of costumes that I made, and I did it all by hand, it was torturous. It was for this photo called Becoming Beyond. It's one of the 
photos that kind of is in people's brains the most. It was taken out in Leavenworth on a mountain knoll with the Enchantment Mountains in the background. And there's 48 people on this mountain with like, let's see, one, two, three, four, five, six of them in trees and like six of them like hanging off the edge of a cliff. We hauled up these thousand pound seal gates that had a geometrical pattern of two overlapping spirals. You know, one spiral is mirrored and the other one's not mirrored. And and it was a huge feat. And, and all those costumes, I rented some of them from a local costume store. And the other ones I just made all by hand. And yeah, and so most of the set design and the props and the costumes, I did all myself. And then in 2019, which was the last art project that I've done, it's crazy. It's been four years since I've done a major art project. And that's intentional. And we can get into why I haven't made art in the last four years. And I mean, the short story is, is the reason I haven't made art in the last four years is because I realized that in order to get to where I want to go, I really need to get, I, at that time I, I was like living on credit cards with no real job for like three years. I was just making art on credit cards, living like a vagabond. It was nuts. And, and then I had told myself that, once I hit 35, if I hadn't, you know, quote unquote, made it, aka, you know, if I wasn't financially stable in this current modality of capitalism, that I would put everything aside and just focus on stability, understanding that like film is expensive, and a film career is expensive, like any any professional, uh, like uh, cinema agency or production company that's doing Netflix films, they have at least a million dollars worth of gear in their inventory. Like at least it's just, it's crazy how expensive this shit is, but I, I know I'm bouncing around a lot, but I will say that this is absolutely the best time ever to be a filmmaker because the technology that we have access to right now is phenomenal. So to circle back around to a couple points that I don't want to leave open-ended in 2019, I did a, a, a photo called world beyond self that took place at a big, arts and music festival. And by that time, I had befriended this person named Sabelle Olson, who I'm still super close with. They're one of my main collaborative partner partners, and they're a costume designer. So I had major help with costumes on that. I don't think I really did any costumes for that photo. We just repurposed all of mine because every single shoot that I've ever done, every production, I recycle all the gear. I repurpose gear. I keep all the gear. Another reason why I was so resistant to working in the film industry you know i was like i'm going to be diy i don't want to work in the industry is because it's so wasteful and it breaks my heart like it's hard for me to watch hollywood films even if they're amazing like dune you know all these big hollywood films i just can't get over how much waste they produce and to me i'm just like i don't care how cool it is if you're throwing away hundreds of acres of forest in your props. Like, I don't give a fuck, you know, I, I just have a completely different standard. And, and so now that I'm 40 and I really feel firm in my ethos, I feel comfortable entering into the industry of being like, look, like I'm skilled, I have talent and, and I want to work in the industry, but there's a better way to do it. You can blow people's minds visually without wasting tons of materials. And as far as technology goes, like, absolutely. Right. Like, we live in a really wild time and it can be really dark and dreary, but technology is not inherently good or evil. It's, it's what we do with it. And 
And I like to think of technology as not human based, but like cosmic or nature based, especially now with, you know, all this jargon around climate change and whatnot. I think it's so silly, the amount of, you know, trillions of dollars we're putting into creating technologies to fight climate change when the earth has already produced the most advanced technology that we've ever seen. And, and I just don't understand why we've lost track of it. Like when you look at a, an old growth ecosystem, the technology that is happening in that ecosystem is fucking insane and amazing. And, and I think that's really the direction that we need to go is to understand that let's not be so narcissistic with what we think technology to be, that it's not just human. Yes, we can produce new forms of technology, but ultimately they need to fit into the larger picture of what technology is on a meta level. And we need to utilize the technologies that are already in front of us. And I think that that is what one of my main inspirations is in my art is to play around with that, that idea. Like, what is it? And, and where I'm, where I'm at right now is, and then I'll shut up for a second, but where <laughs> no I'm at right problem. now is, yeah, <laughs> sorry, I, I, I had a lot of coffee this morning. I wake up at 4 a.m. every every morning. Like, these are my, like, this is my witching hour. This is, like, when I'm, like, biggest energy. I, I do, I do all, I work for, like, four hours in the morning before I clock into my day job, just so I can, like, start every morning immersed in art. And so right now I I'm building, yeah. <clears throat> Yeah, dude, waking up at 4am has been a game changer for like my mental health, my physical health. I wake up like every morning just so stoked, like the moon's shining. I have like an hour and a half of moonlight still. It's been so good. And, and all I'm focusing on right now is building a production company that can like interface with big industry gigs, and then slowly working on a script for this eco fantasy thriller series that takes place 500 years in the future that is going to explore what it is to merge these different forms of technology in a harmonious way. And it's not going to be like cheesy utopian. There's definitely going to be like some scary moments and suspense. And I love thrillers, but it's ultimately about like humans striving to like end warfare, to end violence, to live synergistically with nature, to be, like be more tapped in to all of these nature beings and spirits and energies that we used to be so cl close with in our more indigenous uh, era throughout like all cultures globally, you know, when, like every culture, if you go back far enough in time, they lived with the land and they had a relationship where they saw nature as a living being and they saw, you know, specific species and specific like, uh, rivers or lakes they, they were beings they were like literally beings and and we've lost track of that but the fortunate circumstances of me being immersed in nature for 10 years I felt like I was allowed to time travel back into former former um, states of consciousness that like old civilizations had I think that's really what it was I was like oh wow like this is what it was to be human and to perceive nature way back in the day before before we started to form agriculture and you know all these civilization developments yeah for sure that that's a really good point you make because uh i i'm really into the universe synchronicity and shamanism and what you said is completely true because even if you look at the anglo the anglo side of the the globe they had shamans you know i mean they're they're every culture 
is rooted in a nature-based metaphysical understanding of the universe. I mean, you know, these people knew about the interconnection, you know, like right now, we're just now starting to, to learn about like mycelium and, you know, the, and, and what role everything plays as an interconnection. And, and a lot of these shamanic uh, cultures, you, you know, they, every culture had somebody that was tapped into the universe and they drew on that and everybody was, you know, one of my favorite books is a uh, shaman by Kim, Kim Stanley Robinson. <laughs> and he writes about this. And when I first read it, I was like, wow, this guy gets it, but I didn't know how much he researched cultures, you know, and he knew like everything, even Anglo, like we look at shamans as like, it's not just a guy living in, you know, we have these ethnocentric, not really like racist views of, of what a shaman is, but most people are like these fucking yuppies just going and taking ayahuasca in the jungle. And they think that's where, that's where it's at, but you know, there's yeah. so much more. <laughs> Don't even get me started, man. I know it's tough. Like I, 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 I get nervous to even say the word shaman because of what, like, you know, like, Ah, man, I don't know. I don't want to be derogatory, but there's definitely a group of people out there that have just like totally appropriated these. Ah, fuck it. I, I just don't even want to go there. I want to keep it positive, but I, <laughs> no, I completely yeah. agree with you. But it's really hard. For example, like a lot of the people who are into my art, they think it means something. And I'm like, no, dude, like I don't identify with your interpretation of the world. Like that's just not me. Like, it's been weird, but it's been a an experience of really just feeling at peace with who I am and my own worldviews and not feeling the need to articulate it to anyone or explain it. And yeah, and it's also this weird kind of like force field of just not letting other people's energy in because like, like there's positives to everything, but like things like Burning Man culture and like, like neo new age culture and festival culture. And it just, it really bothers me because I feel like they're totally missing the point on so many levels. And I feel like it's just neo, it's just like neoliberalism, capitalism, neoliberalistic capitalism with really bad appropriative costumes and a lot of like heavy drug use yep, and a I lot agree. of like, yeah i agree with that 100 percent. it's like uh the burning man this year you know i've always uh, kind of identified with the principles of burning man and its founding roots uh like i met some burners back in 2000 so 23 years ago uh i was actually on a tv show and on the tv show i was with these burners and they kind of told me about the concept of it and when i looked at it 20 years ago Burning Man was a completely different entity than what it was now. You know, now I, I don't know if, you know, and, and what happened with climate change kind of exposing what Burning Man is this year, you know, the, the root people are still there cleaning up and they, and there's a very small percentage of that core group that gets it. But I think the larger percentage of it are, are costuming, you know, though that's a, Yep. It, it's just rich people, you know, it's billionaires the, the, flying in, flying out, you know, it, it, 
not really looking at it as a community more as like a release, you know? So, yeah. And I think another thing that you had said too, about kind of shielding yourself, I have a friend that does art. He does mostly uh, oil paintings, mixed media. And the past years he's been doing performance art. And he said it was kind of a hurdle because people he knew kind of looked at him differently. Once you start doing performance art, you're exposing yourself to this, kind of judgment from people that know you if you are in if you are seen on the outside by some outsider it's not such a shock as like if your you know cousin comes to see your art installation and you're doing performance art (laughs) so I don't know if that kind of resonates as well like you know you have to just kind of do it and you know look people in the eye and say this is what I'm making and you know, they either accept it or they don't. And the people that don't are not the people that you want around you anyway. So that's my, two, yeah, that's my yeah. two cents on burning culture and <laughs> performance. Art. <laughs> <laughs> so, but yeah, well, I, I definitely have some thoughts on performance art and, and people's perception of you. I feel like that's been a big I don't want to say the word struggle, but like growing experience that I, that I, I feel like just because this is a podcast and, you know, maybe other people in the world will listen to it and, and to just share, to just share my own experience of coming to terms with one's identity and that it's not always just about being like, this is who I am and fuck anyone that doesn't appreciate it or like it. You know, I'm just going to put up my force field and, you know, fuck anyone that doesn't get it kind of mentality because when I first started making art it was very performance art based and it definitely like yeah it triggered some people and I remembered I I did a showing for my first film and I invited like my family and my family's really conservative you know some of them are like really hardcore Christians which is totally cool like I've really come to terms with all of that but at the time I was way more like rebellious and and I reflect back and, and, you know, and I'm way less judgmental of people that don't get my art. And I, I think I'm just way more sympathetic to different world views. And I realize that it can be pretty juvenile and immature to force your identity onto the world. And I look back on different versions of myself and I, they're pretty embarrassing. Like I'm not embarrassed. Like I've come to terms with who I am. But I'm like, man, that was pretty cringy. Like, that was pretty embarrassing. Like, I would like roll my eyes at that. And for me to expect someone else to just accept that and be okay with that, I think is unfair. And I've noticed that a lot too, especially in this like attention culture is like people will just do things that are pretty cringy just for attention or just to make a point. And I don't think it's really necessary because I feel like if you're, if one is like very secure in their identity, they don't actually really need to express it. And if they are going to express something, I think it needs to be kind of beyond themselves. And it's hard to like delineate what that is or whatnot. But I guess just to kind of boil that down is that I, I'm, I feel let, I feel way less of an urge to just force my identity or see other people force their identity out in the world in like, like Yodorowsky was a part of the panic movement, right? And the panic movement was just to like shock everyone. And I, and I just don't know if that's productive. And, and I feel like from a psychological standpoint, if you shock people that don't get it, 
it probably is going to do more harm than good in those people like getting turned on to other ways of living. And I think where I'm at right now is just really appreciating community and, and like the, 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 the protection of like doing performances in front of people who are on the level, who want to see it and who get it. And yeah, I don't know. I mean, I guess like the panic movement or like, there's a lot of examples of just like, you know, going out in pub, like performance artists just going out in public and causing a scene. But I think it's just gotten totally out of hand with like TikTok. You know, it's just like everyone's like living in their own little basket case world. And, and it's just like, get out of my way. Like, like <laughs> I'm, I'm trying to get to work. Like, I don't care about your weird art performance. And I feel like I can say that because I've been a weirdo and a freak my whole life. Um, but I don't know. I don't know if that means anything. Maybe I'm being judgmental. No, I. But I, I, I really. No, I think it's. I think. You're, yeah, go for it. No, I was gonna say. I think you're onto it because I think uh, it's all. It's almost solipsistic where people, as soon as they step out their their front door, their world is created around them. So I think that's, you know, mo- I think some of the most damaging things from social media has been this solipsism uh, where people just think that what's in front of their lens or what they're doing is the only thing that's important. And I think that, I don't know, I think, you know, even with, like you said, doing something to shock somebody, you're just increasing resistance. I mean, it's, you know, there's people that, that exist on the planet just to own other people, you know, like, Oh, I, you know, I own that, (laughs) that guy, you know, or, I mean, it's just, I don't know, even, even the basic, I don't know. Sometimes I get really frustrated when I see people interacting with other people. It's almost like, um, like you said, you know, you're, you're just like the cacophony of, of existence alone. People are dealing with all kinds of crazy shit and you have somebody that's, you know, wanting you to recognize their art. And if, if I don't like somebody's art, I don't say I don't like it. I just don't consume it. You know, I don't, I don't look at it. I don't, you know, I mean, if, if, if I wasn't jiving with your art, I wouldn't have reached out to you. You know, I I think there's an appreciation of, of being, selective in how you interact with social media or art instead of just having it, you know, just flash in front of your eyes and you have a negative, you know, I I don't know. There's a lot of stuff to that where like in the mornings I try not to do any, I think we're super high because I usually get up about five and I'm, and I know we're super suggestive in the morning, kind of that primal, that primal thing, right. When we're waking up kind of forms our day. And I think that if you consume anything in the morning, like if you just grab your phone and start, like I'll check my messages and check emails, but I don't look at anything that's going to stimulate me positive or negative for about the first two hours of the day, just for that fact. So I think, I don't know. I think we do live in a, in a world where like you said earlier, like technology's definitely opened it up. Like, like I've been wanting to do a podcast for probably five years, but the, there's gatekeepers in technology. There's gatekeepers in the cost of things. I know like David Lynch, some of his films were shot on a uh, uh, Sony handheld and they're great. I know some films were shot on an iPhone five and they're great, but there is a barrier to 
quality work. You know, I mean, if, if you want to get into it, as far as, you know, what it takes to make something, you can have a creative vision and not have the technological (laughs) acumen to be able to do it. And that's, you know, the phone has allowed people to just put content out there as it is. So I don't know, kind of a rambling point to, to that, (laughs) but uh, it, would you like to get into some of your other installations? Like I noticed you had a desert installation. I, I had never really looked at that much. How, how was that in setting up a desert installation versus a forest installation? Yeah. Yeah. That was, that was, that was a trip. <laughs> uh, waxing gibbous that took place in Moab, Utah. It, uh, it was amazing. I'd, I pissed some people off and learned some hard lessons, but it, it was it was definitely a gallant effort. It was fun as hell. And, and I think that was kind of like the height of my mania where it's just really, really wild how in debt I was at the time <laughs> and just, and just, just going for it. It was, man, I'm struggling with words, but yeah, it was a cool experience. The whole point was these, these like, the whole point of the film was to in our culture, every culture has had heroes. You know, what, what, like, like, what is a, what is a hero? And I feel like the definition of a hero is reflective of the time period that humans are conjuring this definition of a hero, right? So like heroes, the definition changes based upon the ebb and flow of civilization. And I think that our current hero, I don't like, I don't identify or like our current conception of heroes. Like heroes are usually people that kill a lot of people or people that fly around on private jets and just consume ridiculous amounts of, um, you know, resources. And, and I, I, yeah, there's so much of like what we look up to and what we aspire to disgust me. Like just that I'll just fucking say it. And, and for me, like a true hero is someone like, I think like someone who lives very simply and humbly and like grows their own garden and, you know, uh, takes care of small creatures is very kind and gentle. That's a hero to me. And, you know, and I, I get that it's not super sexy. It, it won't make the most explosive action scene in a film. So as far as like me really liking big action scenes, liking big visuals, you know, jaw dropping scenes, I really like this idea of, uh, of converting this, like, cause another hero in our current time is like special operations. Like people love Navy SEALs, you know, people love green berets and all these fucking action heroes. And I get it. You know, I, I, I cannot say that I have not drawn inspiration from those disciplines of elite warfare i don't like guns i don't like killing i don't like violence i would love to wor- live in a world where there's no violence but you know there, there is something there's you can learn something from anyone and from anything and and so in the films i create i like to take let's let's back away from the idea of like a special forces person and go more mystical and think of a grandmaster of martial arts like to me that is the bomb because the whole point of being a grandmaster is to neutralize force it's not to instig it's not to instigate force it's not to instigate violence it's to neutralize it someone attacks you you neutralize it 
that is a true grandmaster. That's like the ancient principle. You, you, you have evolved your internal being so advancedly. <laughs> I know it's grammatically incorrect, but you've evolved yourself to such an advanced state that you, you don't seek revenge. You know, you don't, you don't seek hostile energy. And so to translate that all, I really like like action heroes in these eco-futurism films that they're, they're, they're essentially these badass individuals that are dedicating their entire existence to forming like to healing nature to like regrowing damaged ecosystems to like forming technologies that will um yeah like essentially like regrow damaged ecosystems to me that would be the most badass thing is like people living in really hostile environments or like leave, living like in these like destroyed landscapes and they're putting all of their energy and badassness into fixing the problems that modern civilization has occurred you know like i think in my own personal life right like like I think the biggest badasses in my own personal life are people who are um, like policy uh, uh, policymakers at nonprofits. They're not making a lot of money, and they're trying to change environmental laws. They're trying to change regulation. Like to me, those are the biggest badasses. They are. I like. I look up to them so much. I'm like, wow. I can't believe you. Like, yeah. I I, I hope that gives you a bit bigger understanding. Yeah, for sure. I think, you know, it's along the lines, even though he was kind of a warrior, uh, Musashi, you know, Miyamoto Musashi. Yeah. He's I kind love of that, that book. Yeah. And I mean, he has the, the other book about his principles, uh, The Path of Aloneness, I think it's called, uh, Dodoko. Mm. But, I got to uh, check that out. Oh, yeah, for sure. Because these are the two, the two books he present, you know, he presented to his students. And, uh, the concepts of living when you read them they read exactly like you said like this this warrior mystic like undefeated in 60 duels you know he had killed people but he had transcended ego i think to the point where i don't think the second half of his life he really had many duels and i think that's where we get a lot of this philosophy where you know like like you were saying with the special forces like we want to identify with somebody that's that's doing something radical, but unfortunately we identify with people that are doing radically violent things where, you know, nobody, nobody identifies with somebody planting trees in Canada, you know, 2000 trees a day. You'd have to go, wow, that's insane. Somebody might not have context to that, but if you say, Oh, this guy killed, you know, 300, Taliban fighters, you know, that we're like, wow, that has more relevance to somebody understanding like the concept of it's harder to plant 2000 trees than it is to kill 300 people. I mean, but I don't know. So do you think that your, that this project will be your magnum opus? Will this be like kind of what you're, you know, what you want to be known for in, in the coming years? Yeah. You know, I, I, um, uh... Yes. So th this future project that I'm just in the initial phase of writing a script for is what I want the next 10 years of my life to be. And I, I'm not I, I can't really see past 10 years. Some people think I'm crazy that I can even see 10 years. Like some of my best friends are like, I can't even see next month, you know, but that's just <laughs> that's just who I am is I, I've always been. No, I haven't always been, but there was a point in my young adulthood where I realized that I am just a very hyper-focused individual and, and it's caused a lot of ruffled 
feathers in my life with my relationships but for anyone who's super hyper focused and like super deliberate with their existence i bet they can identify with the challenges that it presents but ultimately the rewards are worth it and and yeah so to kind of wrap up with you know you asked me about wax and gibbous in in utah where there's these five characters that are out in the desert and they're they're experimenting with uh essentially what they do is they're out in the deserts of Utah collecting trash and they've created this technology where this trash can go in this technological device and then be converted into an elixir, this like water form. And it's very trippy, kind of acid trippy. And this elixir, it, 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 it nourishes really anything, but specifically the cryptobiotic soil that the, these desert landscapes are dependent upon. And so again, it's this whole idea of like taking all the destruction, right? All this trash, all this waste. How do how do we utilize it for a higher purpose? How do we convert it into something that can 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 grow and nourish and give life substance? And it's, it's just so weird because we live in this culture that's like very anti-life. It's like boring, you know, like the words like grow or nourish are seen as like, you know, dorky or cheesy, but like life force is ultimate like 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 the expression of life force is the most badass fucking thing there is on this planet and 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 so i i just want to show that so but as far as this next project that i'm slowly building into uh you asked if it's going to be my magnum opus it'll definitely be my next big work and i know what's going to happen one of the reasons i moved out to whatcom county uh, up here close to the canadian border there's a lot of reasons, but one of the fringe benefits is I live close to this art community who owns 70 acres. This, this collective owns 70 acres of land and a bunch of artists live there, and, you know, and they're kind of like borderline, like broke hippie artist, but they also put on super big productions and they're hungry. They're hungry for high level art. And, and now that I've, you know, dumped tons of cash into all this nice gear, I'm forming this relationship with them where I, I want to subsidize hardcore community filmmaking, where I can work in the industry, I can work my ass off and, and pay the, these people that I admire and who are right next door to create whatever the hell that we want to create within this, within this world that I've been building, this like eco-futurism world. And as far, like, cool part is, the cool part is, sorry if you're hearing my texting, I'll turn my... Someone would just text the mail, turn that off. That's all right. I don't hear anything. Uh, okay, cool, cool. So film is a lifelong career. And that's one thing that I've really, really started to trust. We, I was raised in a culture and this culture, and I was raised in a culture that led me to believe that you have to get famous right away, that if you don't get famous in a couple of years, you're a failure. Um, if you're not famous ever, you're a failure. And, and, and now I'm realizing that, wait a second, like things take time, this whole mentality of patience and patience and patience and patience. It's, it's so fun to reflect back and be like, I never thought that I would have got here. I wanted to get here so bad, but now I'm here. And, and yes, I would love to just drop everything and just create a film right now, but it's unrealistic. And I feel like just patience and patience, patience, it will, it will happen. I don't know when it'll happen. I don't know how it'll end up, but at least I have a track record of success 
and and ideally i would be making movies in my 50s and 60s and 70s and you know like so yeah i i have no idea where it's gonna go but i am wholeheartedly and full throttle pursuing this path and laying the foundation and i think that's one thing that i really learned from youth i have no regrets i was talking with one of my friends so one of my friends one of the reasons i'm able to drop all this cash right now is because i have this like millionaire mountain playboy friend who's who's just an insane athlete he's just so rad and he's also an incredibly astute businessman business person and and I was always like really, I kind of always had this like shame dynamic around him. We're best friends. Like he brings me deep into the mountains. We do a bunch of backcountry skiing and, and rock climbing, all that. I, I learned most of my, my rope technique and climbing technique, all, all these crazy uh, rope techniques that I've implemented into these stunts where I have people like standing on top of trees, et cetera, et cetera. I learned a lot of it from him. And I always felt really embarrassed because I was always this broke artist hustling gigs on or like hustling projects on credit cards severely in debt like no income and you know i've been really building this business plan for creating a production company and which is really like talking talking shit about myself to him being like man like i was such an idiot for doing all this and he's like dude he's like shut the fuck up like are you kidding me he's like what you did is the best possible thing you could ever have done like you took the biggest rest risk and now you have this incredible portfolio that is mind-blowing and you did it all like on a shoestring he's like what you did was the most brilliant thing ever and i had never ever told myself that i had never even thought of that that way i've been like whoa like these were all responsible decisions they weren't they weren't irresponsible if, if we live in capitalism and you need liquidity you need access to capital and with where i came from and where i was at credit cards was the only easy access to capital. Like I didn't have people in my life who would front me money. No institution in their right mind would have given me money on loan. And all, so the only way I could access capital was through credit cards and I fucking paid it all off. And you know, I never defaulted anything. I've always been super financially responsible. And, and it was awesome to just hear that from him. And he's, and we live in a, you know, right now the interest rates are horrible and he's giving me a, a super low interest rate loan so I can start this production company and get all this gear, all these tools. So, um, yeah, that's kind of, I don't know where that relates to, but, um, <laughs> yeah, no, that's, that's exactly yeah. right. I mean, I, and if you study like people of wealth, even that they run on debt, I mean, nobody, nobody wants to spend capital. That's why, you know, that's why we have wealth transfers. So, I mean, you're, you're basically just chipping away at, at the wealth transfer. If you worked your ass off and saved your money and put it in the bank and tried to slowly accumulate what you did, you probably wouldn't have even started. I mean, you would have just slowly fucking, you know, become downtrodden and, you know, fucking doing something that you didn't want to do for years. I mean, I, I definitely appreciate people take that, that risk. And, you know, there's one thing to people that are like living super simply and, and doing what they want. But there's another thing, if you have a grand vision, you have to make it work. And I mean, that's in, you know, the fucking capitalism runs on debt. Capitalism is debt. I mean, that's the only thing that keeps this, this fucking sham going is, you know, everybody owes somebody else money and that's just the game. I mean, I don't know. I don't, yeah. I don't, it's I don't think what you did was outside the norms. I mean, that's what production companies, I mean, fucking look at Marvel. 
you know, movies, they're, they're getting loans. If they, if they fuck up, they're, you know, they just move on. <laughs> they just go bankrupt yeah. and move on. We can't do that as individuals. You know, if, if what we're doing doesn't work, we're still on the fucking hook, you know? So, yeah. no, I mean, mad respect for what you did. I mean, you know, looking back through your, through your work and your website's fucking absolutely awesome. And, and looking back through it, you know, I mean, you definitely, it, it it doesn't seem like there's much of an evolution from like primitive work to really good work. It seems like you just came out of the gate and just started making good work. And I think that came from having the, the finances and the capital be able to do that. So, I mean, definitely think that's, you know, I, I think, I think that's, that's a good, that's a good, good, good place to come from. Do you, do you think, let me ask you this. Do you think if, if somebody approached you, like say Mount Baker approaches you and they're like, Daniel, uh, we need to do some marketing this year. You know, will you, you know, film some, you know, just grab content. That's, you know, that's what our marketing guy says. I'm just going to go grab some content. Would, would you be willing to like grab content in exchange for money? I mean, would you, would you put your artistic kind of, vision on hold and just and and work in the film industry maybe doing something that's not so rewarding can you see yourself doing that or are you just like staunchly fuck this it's art or nothing oh no i, I apologize if i didn't explain myself i mean that's exactly where i'm at is yeah i want to make money in the industry and and that's it like, i i no i i've revoked this whole like art or nothing because it creates a dead end. And I see so many artists doing it. It's like, cool, great. Like I appreciate your principles, but you're just going to be a broke artist that isn't going to be able to excel your craft. Like, sorry, it, where, <laughs> and that's where I was, you know, if, if I was just like a staunch, like art or nothing, then I would just be in my own echo chamber making the same shit over and over and over. And, and yeah, what, what I'm doing right now is building a production company so I can make in the industry so I can work in the industry and make money. And if Mount, if Mount Baker, there's two things going on. If Mount Baker, you're talking about the ski resort, right? Yeah, like, yeah, yeah. like a ski resort. Yep. Yeah. So if like Mount Baker wanted to hire me for promo, two things, am I good enough to make something that I'm proud of? B, how much are they going to pay me? Those are the two ingredients. And, and, and I'm going to get paid well if I'm confident and capable of making rad shit. And, and it may not be my style. It may not be like my vision. And, and, and that is what I've been working on the last couple of years is even though my own personal art, everything on my website is amazing. The commercial gigs that I could accomplish with that skill set that I had prior to where I'm at right now, I could not make anything worth getting paid for. And that was really challenging for me of being this like magnificent artist who can't create commercial work that's worth being paid for. I didn't have the gear. I didn't have the expertise. I didn't have the technical knowledge of how to operate like super nice cameras, et cetera. And I realized that that was a weakness, a limiting fact. I was limiting my own self by being this like young, like book the man. It's like, no, like I want to make, I want to access all that capital and all of that wealth in the industry because I'm at a point in my life where I know that I'll channel it into what I believe is a good purpose of creating art that 
expresses the respect and reverence for nature and for these other ways of, of living and, and supporting my art community. I mean, the ideal situation is that Mount Baker pays me 10 grand to make a one minute clip and that takes two weeks and I take that 10 grand, I pay the bills, et cetera, et cetera. And then I dump all of it into paying my art friends, to paying my actors to like, you know, getting more gear, et cetera. So that's what I'm pumped. It took me a long time to get pumped on that because I, I, w I was always so hard on myself because I couldn't perform in the industry. And I just couldn't, I sucked. <laughs> like, like I, this shit was embarrassing, but now like all I've been doing is studying like for ecosystems, uh, it's called special camera operations. It's, it draws on like our whole culture draws so much from elite forces and these Navy seals and in the film industry, you have special camera operations. These are the guys that are, you know, fl flying 50,000 drones that are hanging like, you know, ca cable cams across canyons i want to really niche down to being a cable cam specialist so i'm buying like a really rad um, like a uh, cable cam and gimbal operator and it's really fun too if like i'm a gear junkie i'm a gear geek so a lot of it is it, it's having the tools and knowing how to use the tools and knowing how to integrate that into the vision of your client in a way that truly benefits them and also gets you off uh, you know it's just if you're if you have if you're a talented filmmaker you can look make anything look cool. I think that where I would draw the line is I, I want to be able to cherry pick jobs uh, that rough, like I don't want to do a commercial for like, I don't know, just some like really horrible corporation, like the, uh, uh, what is it? The Koch brothers or the Koch brothers. Or <laughs> right. <they> are. <laughs> yeah. You know, yeah. or, 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 or like, um, like, a, I, I don't know, like, I, I see these, like, a, like, I, I just see all these horrible, horrible commercials for these horrible companies. And sometimes, you know, and, and at the end of the day, part of me is, I don't know, I'd have to draw the line somewhere. But there's also this gray area of just like, well, maybe they're not the best company in the world, but just get their fucking money and take that money, invest it into something good. Yep, you I know, agree. It, it just, like, like a like a reverse wealth transfer. Like, I'm taking bam. your bad money and I'm putting it right into something good. Exactly. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. I yeah. I can definitely appreciate that, and that's really cool about the the special camera operations. That's because I know, um, like, with I'm a huge backcountry skier, but I also work at a ski resort, and I see like the filming industry and the production companies that came around just in the past decade because of this you know new gear there's some really good outdoor films being made like you know there's like matchstick productions and you know all these other different companies that are that are employing these athletes that can also run cameras so i think it's a super yep. niche it's a super niche thing to to have but if you can pull it off you know uh the sky's the limit as far as that goes that's that's absolutely amazing so yeah yeah it's sometimes i feel like i'm i've been like telling all the people close to my life that like i'm eventually gonna put myself out there i'm gonna you know they're like man you've been talking about networking for like four years and i i've just never put myself out there i've just put my head down put my blinders on and i think a lot of that is just trust trusting my own tuition it's like it, it's just like, you know, you don't, I'm, I'm thinking dumb sports analogies, but you don't, you don't want to jump the gun. I think that's the 
that you know right you don't you don't want to jump the gun or do anything too premature otherwise it can bite you in the ass and yeah. it's like right now no no one knows who i am so like w- why would i put myself out there when i'm not ready when i don't have anything to bring when i don't have anything to show for myself from an industry perspective like like i think like i have done rounds of like you know networking or putting myself out there and i think the last time was like two years ago my mom recently moved to portugal and this was like two years ago when i was still like pretty in debt and and like really struggling mentally like i like it was probably the like the darkest time in my recent adulthood was two years ago where i i just had completely given up on my film dreams and I was helping my mom move to Portugal, which was super stressful. I love her to death, but she's definitely a character and, and just struggles with like a lot of certain responsibilities, but she makes up for it for having like a heart of gold. We don't need to get into family dynamics, but anyways, I was helping her move to Portugal. And since I was all the way in Portugal, I went to like Berlin and it was miserable. I like, cause I was like, I can, I was like, I can't afford to be here. I'm like, what the fuck? I'm like, why am I on vacation? I just was so miserable. And all my friends were like, damn, like, you're so negative. Like, go have fun. And I'm like, no, like, why, what, why can I have fun? I'm broke. All I want to do is make films. I feel directionless in life. Like, going out and spending money on expensive beer in Berlin isn't going to do shit for me. So I literally just stayed in the Airbnb the entire time and just worked out and just, and just emailed everyone. I just went on these crazy binges. I just like bought like cheap, spicy liquor and, <laughs> and just went on, <laughs> went on. I'm not much of a drinker, but I can appreciate drinking in the right context. And that was a great context to do it. And, and I, and I made a lot of really cool connections and none of it resulted in any job or any income, but it definitely gave me a lot of confidence, but essentially everyone was like, we don't know what the fuck to do with you. Like your art's cool, but it doesn't make sense to us. It doesn't really fit in the industry. There's definitely a lot of rejection. And then and then a few people were like, oh wow, this is really cool. Great. You know? And I was like, okay, that's great feedback. You know, I some like big music video directors. Um, I like got in contact with like uh, you know, you know, Prodigy, that electronic hardcore band from like the nineties. Oh yeah. Um, yeah. So like I tracked down their manager who like started this big record label. And they're like, yeah, we, we, we can't really like offer you work, but like, as far as being an artist, like, wow, we're super impressed. So there's a lot of that. And, and I just experienced that as rejection, but ultimately through the maturation process, I'm like, dude, take a fucking memo. Like if you want to work in the industry and develop these skills, then you need to put your head down and do it. And so where I'm at right now is I still haven't really networked. I'm just starting to, cause I'm like, I want to network when I have the whole setup, when I have all the fucking gear and I know how to use it and I can just show up on a Hollywood set, on a Netflix set, on whatever, and do my niche role. And, and I think right now being like a, you know, a gimbal and, and, and cable cam operator is the way to go. Um, yeah. So I guess the whole, the whole, um, like the lesson from that is that some, it's okay to not pressure yourself to go too fast. And, and if no one knows who you are, maybe you should just keep it that way for as long as possible until you know that once you put yourself out there that it will be easy and 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 that's where that's why i'm really excited right now because i'm getting close to that point and i and i also want to say like i'm gonna play devil's advocate is that i've also struggled with like always living in the future it's like 
I'll be satisfied when this happens or, you know, I'll, I'll, I'll make it when, you know, I have all the gear, et cetera, et cetera. So I've been really trying to work on like just being so stoked on the day to day, stoked on the learning, stoked on the process, uh, just stoked on all the little things as like cliche as that sounds and not being so obsessed of being like, you know, I'm inadequate and I'm worthless until I get to this point that I know I'm capable of getting to. It's like, no, dude, like you'll get there and it's going to be awesome. And in the meantime, just enjoy yourself. And yeah, so yeah, 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 for sure. I think uh, those are a lot of good. uh, uh, I think any action is good. I mean, just even reaching out to people is is a lesson in. I won't say humility, but it's a lesson in acceptance. Like I know from podcasting, like I I think I've got twelve or thirteen episodes in, and. I struggle because I'm an introvert. I'm an only child. I, I grew up in the mountains, you know, kind of wandering around by myself. So I, I struggle to reach out to people. And I, <laughs> I think I could relate to you with your email spree because I always feel bad if I approach somebody to be on the podcast. Like I'll see their work. And the whole thing is, you know, it's about contrarians. It's about people doing different things. So it's really approaching these people and saying like, like, oh, what you're doing is really cool, but it's, you know, it's not mainstream. So they, they don't know how to take it usually. Like, why does this guy want to talk to me? You know, I live in my fucking van and I ski 300 days a year. Like, what? why does this guy want to talk to me? But that's the kind of, that's the kind of thing is like, there's energy in the action of it. You know, I mean, just starting the process and, you know, and, and being patient. Like, uh, you know, there's people <clears throat> that I've asked to, to interview and, and they were like, you know, let's interview next year. And I'm like, that's fine. I can accept that. You know, it's if people's energies aren't into what you're doing, then then you just accept that. I mean, I think those are really good points you had just about the process. You know, I've always been into the process. Like everything goes towards the process, even daily, you know, just writing, writing a paragraph first thing in the morning is is part of the process. That's the day to day shit. I don't know. I think it's, I don't know, we could go uh, all around the process of it. Cause I think you're, you know, you're, you're definitely, uh, you're definitely somebody that, that understands the struggle, you know, you're not just firing things off, you know, like a shotgun, you're, you're, you know, <laughs> you have intention, like, you want to make something work from these connections. I can, I can definitely see that. And that's, you know, the universe also too. That's why I just, you know, I take rejection as a, as a sign of the universe is directing me in a different way. You know, it's not, I don't just dead in that. It's like maybe something circles back around and I've had great conversations with people that, you know, that would never be on the podcast. And I appreciate those conversations, but that's kind of my take on, on that as well but do you want to get into a a little like maybe steer away from art a little bit and get into uh like trail building because i know that uh, um i've always been infatuated with with trails you know growing up kind of out in the woods i would find game trails and uh i think we have this primal desire to follow a trail (laughs) do you think that we have a primal desire to to follow trails and build trails Yes. Yeah. I, I definitely think we do. I definitely think trails are very ancient 
mystical symbolism for human existence. And that whole process of building trails taught me so much. And I think one of it too, from an ecological standpoint is because this, this has been a, a weird struggle because in the last couple of years, I've gotten heavily into conservation work. So where I live right now in Whatcom County, I live literally next to an old growth forest. And that's one of probably the biggest reason why I really felt comfortable moving out here is I live next door to an old growth forest and this old growth forest is not protected. Uh, it, it's still uh, subject to potential logging and our whole community got together and, and fought the DNR that Washington State Department of Natural Resources, fight isn't the right word, but we resisted, they were going to log it. And we shut it down, uh, you know, not, not through like a tree sit or anything. We, we did it through policy and through, through advocacy. And, and, and things are in limbo, it's still not protected yet. Um, but so I've gotten heavily involved in conservation. And it's interesting, too, because I see my artwork as, as trying to sh show how do I put this in the words? There, there, there's a spectrum of, of how people see conservation. And I would say that some of the most divisive groups are conservationists. And you'll get like super ultra purists that were like, a human doesn't even belong in nature. You know, it's like, if you do anything to nature, you're a bad person. You know, it's like, how could you, how could you do anything? And, 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 and I, I've had conservations heavily critique my work of being like, how the fuck could you do a film, a film in that pristine environment, even though we did it super minimally invasive, you know, when you compare like most film productions are like stupidly destructive. And, and, and like, for example, the Utah, like I, I said that, like I kind of pissed some people off. So for the Utah trip, we, um, one of like, one of the epic scenes is we went on top of this Mesa. And, and I was there for a month filming with this team. So I went there with two friends, uh, three friends. This one friend, this one friend that I had was like, yeah, dude, I'm living in Moab. Let's do a project there. And I'm like, all right, let's do it. And so I just like made up a project and, and that's where this whole film came from. And then that, that guy, um, his brother, and then his best friend joined forces with me. And then we just ended up meeting all these people that joined forces with us. Like, Andy Lewis, sketchy Andy. He was like a major contributor, like so thankful for him. And, and so we were out there for a month doing this all and we were nowhere near completion. And so we had, we had hauled up like all these solar panels onto the top of this Mesa and all these props and not a lot, but like a lot for like, you know, four human bodies with rigging systems, hauling all this shit up into the top of a Mesa. It was kind of ridiculous, but I think like very elegant and beautiful and and on the last day that we were going to be there, that was like the, the we were going to film the final scene and a windstorm came in and a crazy windstorm. And so we had to shut it down. And I'm like, well, we're not going to finish this project. I got to go back to Seattle. I can't remember why I had to go back to Seattle, but I had to. And so I was like, fuck it. I'm going to come back out like in a month and we'll finish this. And so what we did is we left all those props on top of the Mesa and we we like uh, buried them under rocks. We tried to weight everything down and 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 so we like weighted everything down with this like a bunch of rocks uh and then i was gone for a month and and when i come back uh a portion of the props are gone they've just been blown off and like we just severely underestimated the the wind force there and even though we like you know try to batten down the hatches and weight all these props down a few of them got loose and and so these like old school like purist 
climbers when I was in Seattle, like, I don't know these people, but they, when I was gone and all these props were left up there, they climbed this Mesa and they found all these props and they thought they were just abandoned. And they also found the props that had just been like blown across the desert. And I feel like an asshole for it. I hate litter. Like I'm the fucking neurotic guy that cleans up everyone's litter in the forest. I go to the forest. If I see litter, I fucking pick it up. That's just who I am. Um, but yeah, I mean, ultimately like I littered in this pristine environment and I ended up paying a fine and cause they reported me to the BLM and the BLM caught wind of it. It was, it was crazy, dude. Um, but it was crazy. for the better. Yeah. I've had, I've had like a lot of experiences where I do things without permission and then I get caught and then I get official permission and it's this really weird dynamic and it's very, the, I caught on to this dynamic in one of Yodorowsky's interviews where when he was making the Holy mountain in Mexico, everyone hated it. The culture hated it. And the president of Mexico actually had a death threat on him. <laughs> and and no, like dead serious, like a death threat. It's like, it's like, if you don't, if you don't stop this film, we're going to hunt you down and kill you. And he ended up like going to the president's house and knocking on his door and having a conversation with him. Uh, and I've done that on two occasions. The, the, the Gates of Harmony, the, the one in Leavenworth, where those 48 people were on that mountain knoll I spoke about earlier in this conversation, that I didn't have permission and I got caught. And, and I, ended up going, I ended up going to the, the people who managed that watershed. It's like a county district watershed. And I had like a whole meeting with their board and they ended up unanimous, unanimously giving me permission to do it after we got busted by the sheriffs. And then in... Um, in Moab, it was the same, same deal. I was just like, I'm like, to me, my whole mentality is like, this is wilderness. Like no one owns it. And I try to approach it with reverence. And I, you know, I try my best to be like, the only person I answer to are the beings of wilderness who have lived here for eons and eons and eons. And I don't give a fuck about modern laws, which is very anti-authoritarian. And like, that's how you piss off the police. That's how you get arrested. That's how you pay fines. And I don't do that anymore. Maybe, I don't know, but I definitely <laughs> like, I like playing by the book. I don't like getting in trouble whatsoever. Um, I do like playing by the book. And if I ever do really big film productions, that's the cool part about the Lookouts Art Quarry, this art collective that owns 70 acres. It's private land. You can do whatever the hell you want if you have private, if you're doing it on private land. And I, I've never had that opportunity to create on a grand scale on private land. Yeah. But anyways, so <clears throat> to bring this back to trail building, right? I, I say all these stories just to kind of give a perspective of the, the range of views on what conservation is and on what like ecology is and what a human relationship is with the land. And, and you get a lot of mixed bags and it's kind of disheartening to be involved in the environmentalist community and the conservation community and to see how little progress is made because of all the infighting and all the disagreement of like who's more righteous than the other. And with trail building, it showed me that you can interact with nature in a way that is minimally invasive while still interacting with it. And I think that a trail through the forest is the perfect example of that. The perfect example. I can, I can agree with that. I, before, before I forget, I want to talk a little bit more about uh, Moab. Uh, you know, yep. of course, you know, Dean Potter. Um, he was like one of my kind of heroes 
you is know, Dean and, Potter like half a thumb guy? Is that Dean Potter? No, Dean. No, Potter that's Tommy. Is, Co- that's Tommy Codwell. Yeah. Tommy Codwell yeah. has half a thumb. Yeah, Dean, Dean Potter. Potter. Yeah, he, he died in a wingsuit accident a few years ago, but he had soloed. Okay. He soloed Delicate Arch in mm. Arches, and he got in. A, I mean, his spawn. You know, uh, Prana dropped uh, in as a sponsor. But I right. always thought that it was kind of hypocritical because he left no trace. He soloed Delicate Arch, left no trace. And I don't know if you've been to Arches and the Delicate Arch, but there is fucking stairs chiseled in the rock and (laughs) and handrails bolted to the rock. And I thought it was always hypocritical because like, you know, it's such bullshit. Yeah. And if you read Edward Abbey, you know, solitaire that's how arches was back in the day and now we look at it and it's a paved road when we went there i thought you know what would be great for this because you couldn't park anywhere you had to queue up to just go see an arch i thought this is great like build a parking lot at the top of the hill and fucking have a fleet of bicycles and if and you know and i mean if you're if, if if you're you know wheelchair bound or anything we make provisions for that but get people to interact with nature a little more <laughs> like it, <laughs> naturally, I guess, is the word for it. Instead of these, uh, Abby always called them industrial tourists, you know, and I think yep. that's that's something yeah. that, you know, I think Dean kind of exposed for myself when I saw him getting so much flack. And I think Sketchy Andy's the same way. I look at some of his projects yep. that he has there and I think he catches a lot of shit. You know, I mean, he's doing tandem base jumps off of off of shit in Moab and it bugs people out. And I yep. I don't know. I Andy's got great energy. I actually talked to him about coming on the podcast, but he's you know, as you know, he's kind of uh he's pretty active. <laughs> so he's he's hard to nail down, you know. But that's yeah. the kind of in, that's the kind of energy you need is people that are like, you know, minimally invasive. They care a lot about the environment. Dean was probably the most staunch environmentalist that that I knew of at the time. And uh, yeah, y- you know, I mean, to solo de- delicate arch with there's really not there's no video, there's nothing out there of him doing it, and he did it for himself mm. and still got in trouble. You know, it's yeah, but it's hip- it's hypocritical because it's an industrial, you know, recreational. It's like a ski area or a ski resort, yep. you know, I mean, it's the same way you're interacting with nature on humans terms, you know, whereas I don't know to get back to the trails though. I think that we, you know, I know that some of the most powerful moments I've had is when I've gone through Oregon and Washington and stopped to hike sections of the PCT. And every time I'm on the PCT, I think to myself, this is fucking 2,600 continuous miles of a trail. You know, this is, I look at it as like, like a thread being stretched across the, you know, the Pacific crest. And it's, I don't know, trail trails are so cool. Trails are so fucking cool. Absolutely. Sorry. I didn't mean to tangent there with Dean Paul. I was just, that's that's a great, I love that you brought that up because I, I very much, I, I, I very much identify with his experience. And it's yep. challenging. It's it's that experience that Dean went through that I've also experienced in my own life has made me hesitant to put myself out there because I just, it's just not, it's just, that's why like I, I, 
I've I'm I've taken a lot of steps back from sharing a lot of what I do because I just don't care what people's opinions are and it's just not worth the effort of having to wade through everyone's judgment. And I I don't even like participating in social media much because it's just everyone judging everyone and it's just all these people sitting on their couch just spewing bullshit and it's just it's just so dumb it's so dumb and I just don't want anything to do with it and and I think that in a way like the more and more extroverted and the more and more like share frenzy the world gets the more and more I realize that like being reclusive and, and, and being hermited is like the way. And, and like, that's like, that's the bliss. That's, that's the purity. You know, everyone's like in this frenzy of like, I got to share more. I got to share more. I got to post more. And I'm like, you're just feeding the beast. You know, like you're literally giving away your talents for free. I think that was a really big moment of um, when I realized I was listening to some podcasts about like, you know, the art industry and whatnot and social media is making money off of others, people, other people's art for free. Every single time you post on social media, you're allowing a company to make money off of your effort. And, and I have big ass hands that have very little sensitivity from all my time in the mountains. So it's extremely challenging for me to operate phones and, and you can't do social media on a laptop. Like you can't do reels and a lot. I manage, I manage, I manage a record label. That's my job. And so I do global marketing for a record label. I'm super plugged into social media. And I think that's part of it too, is I do so much of like digital marketing for a record label. I just like have no interest to do it on my own time for myself. And there's also so many examples. Like I just emailed this hotshot director of photography um, in, in, who's doing like all these big Hollywood films. He's this young guy. He's best known for doing Mandy. His name's Benjamin. I don't want to like slaughter the pronunciation of his last name. So it's just spelled L O E B. Uh-huh. And Mandy is this like, this like psychedelic horror film with Nick starring Nicholas Cage. I do not like horror films at all. Like I'm a softie. <laughs> I don't like violence. But the, the cinematography was amazing because it was all low light and it was all red. And, and I really love low light environments. But where am I going with this? Oh, yeah. So Benjamin, he doesn't even have social media. There's so many examples of like big league cinematographers and people in the industry that just don't have social media because they realize it's a time suck and total bullshit. Um, I don't know where I was going. With oh, yeah. Just like the, the Dean Potter judgment thing. I feel for the guy. And, and ultimately, probably most of those people judging had spent like a fraction of a fraction of a fraction of a fraction of time in the wilderness that Dean had yep. and, and, and couldn't even conceptualize the relationship that he had with ancient nature. And they're going to fucking sit there and talk shit about them. And I just, it, it, I don't like to get mad, but it pisses me off. And, and yep. so I'm just, I'm just over it. Like, I just don't got time for that shit. <laughs> yep. Yeah. I think though, the one thing that kind of suffers though, is like, there's really not much, you know, Dean's got a couple films out there and I know uh, Dean Feidelman is thinking about doing a Dean Potter centric film is like when people don't share a lot, you, you end up finding out about these people and wishing they had more, you know, where you could kind of see their, I don't want to say content, but where you could kind of see their, their work. You know, I think yeah. that's the old, that's probably the only good thing social media does. It kind of leaves you like a, 
you know, especially if you do like videos on YouTube or you do something where somebody can kind of get a feel for you long after you've gone. I, I don't believe in legacies, but I, I definitely, if somebody passes, I like to look back on their work and be like, fuck yeah. Like that's, that's a solid fucking piece of work, you know, <laughs> but I don't know. I think, uh, I, I think it has two different, it's, it can be helpful. It can be harmful, but like you said, it's, it's making money passively for somebody else. I mean, they're, you know, I mean, and it's, and it's divisive too. And they, they make more money, the more divisive the content is. So I think, yeah. Yeah. I don't know. I think it's just, it's just something that has to be navigated around. I don't know what social media looks like in, you know, in five years or 10 years. I don't know what it is. I mean, there's certain platforms that I absolutely will not use. I mean, you know, I mean, I, I don't even know what really TikTok is. I don't, you know, I've, I, I, I looked at it, you know, from a friend and was like, that seems crazy. Like you're just mindlessly just firing through these tiny little videos of, you know, people either embarrassing themselves or hurting themselves. I was like, this is not constructive. <laughs> yeah. I it's definitely know. pretty, pretty cringe at times. Yeah. Yep. I, I got on TikTok and I went viral and I ended up just shutting it down. Cause I don't, I just can't, I just don't, didn't want to deal with it. It just wasn't, it just wasn't worth it to me. Yeah. And cause the, the viral was like half, positivity and half negativity and i don't know because I, I the, the my, my whole the whole ever since i got on social media in college like 20 years ago you know everyone has this crave of like they want to be seen and, yeah and the last 10 years on on and it was so frustrating too is because like for 10 years i was posting all of my art on on instagram and like no one fucking saw it like no followers at all and and to me i'm just like this is bullshit it, like i hate gatekeepers i hate gatekeepers and then and then this summer I, I got on tiktok and i posted this this like kind of controversial project that i did and it went viral and and i was like okay cool i finally went viral and it was like i was able to taste the cake to realize i was like this, for a decade i've been wanting to eat this cake so bad and i finally got to <laughs> eat it and i was like this cake fucking sucks like yeah I don't, I don't want this fucking cake. I don't like cake in the first place. So I'm really happy and thankful that that, that, that happened. And, and like, I have this kind of acquaintance in my life who is a super famous YouTuber and she's a neurotic mess, an absolute neurotic mess. <laughs> like fame, fame works for very, very few people. I think for most people, fame just ends up leaving you a scattered brain neurotic mess you have to be extremely definitive in your identity to be able to navigate that and you know i think i could but i don't want to i just i'd rather watch youtube tutorials on how to build camera ecosystems for special camera operation you know so there's so much to learn and that's yep. the thing too is like i don't i don't want to hate on anything like there's positives to everything and and i've learned a lot on social media and i've definitely connected with a lot of cool people but i think being able to see both sides of it just allows you to be more uh, proactive in your autonomy and how you use these devices. And I'm just in a phase right now where I just don't really want to participate. And um, it's not to say like, I'll never, never, ever. Yeah. You know? Yeah. Dude, that's, that's a fucking, that's a banger point right there. I mean, that's, 
you know, if you use it to your advantage, I mean, even teaching yourselves, there's, there's so much shit that you can do yourself. I mean, you, you know, some of the gatekeepers of, to learning at least have dissolved, but there's a lot of gatekeepers to film and, or to fame and fortune that, that are still, that still exist. But I mean, you can definitely learn anything you want, you know, uh, I know, uh, I was thinking about Mark Twight's partner, uh, Michael Blevins. He was yep. saying something about, uh, you know, he was do- like, he was doing something where he had to learn something and always oh, talking about mathematics. He just like randomly took this physics, you know, or some shit. Like he wanted to teach himself math. And so he's like, I just went on and learned, you know, some fucking you know, not quantum physics, but I learned theoretical physics. I mean, that's, that's something you couldn't do 20 years ago, but I think that's yeah. a, but you know, and also the purest thing I want, I wanted to say, like, uh, when I first learned of you, I think Mark Twight had actually shared your blog. So I think blogging almost is one of the more pure forms. I won't even say social media, but it's a it's a pure form of just putting yourself out there without the expectation of interaction. I think that's something with social media that we end up we end up having that as a fault where we expect that interaction. Like if I post a picture, I want somebody to like it. I want that dopamine shit, you know. Whereas if I do mm-hmm. a blog post and a hundred people read it. It, it makes no difference if one or 100 read it. It's the same creative output, whereas we don't have that same dopamine hit. So I think your blog is actually how I became acquainted with you and you were bike racing. So I think that's mm-hmm. almost a, a little more pure of a, of a form of, of creating than, than just going like, Oh, this, this photo is going to get, you know, so many likes. <laughs> so I don't know, but I definitely like your, your aspect of the hermitage. Uh, I have a friend that lives in France. He's kind of a, I've, I've never met him, but he's kind of like one of the online friends, uh, Pitor. And he had gotten on Instagram and said something somewhat controversial about COVID and instantly was like, he was only on Instagram for maybe six months and he's an excellent photographer and I loved his photos. That dude was like, you know, I think he's 60 this year and he just kind of had this like awakening and it's like, fuck this, pulled all of his shit off, shut his shit down and that's it. And the only mm-hmm. way I talk to him is via email. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and it's like it's kind of like just throwing the gauntlet down like i will not participate in this this bullshit like i don't you know i don't know what the expectations are of some people if they're gonna if they're looking for all positive interactions then then i don't know you know how that factors into <laughs> their choice of social media so i don't know that's just ramblings of me thinking about social media but yeah it's, it's a big topic these days yeah it is it's very crazy i mean it's definitely divisive too as far as like you know just even on instagram when you post something you know and i, I try to avoid anything controversial but i mean i do have my you know my triggers i guess you know it's some of its capitalism some of its you know destruction of nature uh so on and so forth but 
Well, I don't, I don't want to take up too much of your time. Uh, I, I definitely have enjoyed the, the conversation and, uh, you know, I'm glad that, you know, how many years ago <laughs> did I read Mark Twight back when I think he was still with Jim Jones. I think I, he put something out there about you racing. And I was like, it's fucking, cause I think at the time you're like, you're basing, basing out of your truck, you know, just living this super simplistic life. And, you know, I was riding recreationally, you know, there was, I had a couple, you know, 150, 200 mile weeks. And, and I used to love riding road bikes. I don't do it so much. I have a surly cross check, you know, I just, I'll ride it to the trailhead and just keep on riding. But, uh, it, I, I always enjoyed your racing and I think it came from a point of like, this simplistic like you were just living and writing and i think that was like distilled to the basics of life you know i don't know do you have any takeaways from from your racing days i mean that that still influence you today is there discipline is there you know do you have any anything that you carry over yeah i mean when i first stopped bike racing i was kind of i was kind of like going through an awkward identity crisis and so i was kind of like hating on bike racing like oh it's so square it's so lame uh but now looking back like it was incredible and i'm incredibly thankful for it and the discipline and team dynamics there's very little difference between a film set and a bike racing team it's just equipment management team dynamics, communication, all being on the same page. They're, it's very, very similar, very, very uh, uh, fast paced, you know, high stress. Uh, you got to perform on demand. You got to have your shit together. Just gear management. It's just, yeah, just, you know, you could be super talented, but if you don't know how to pack your kit bag and you don't know how to show up on time, there's no pro teams going to hire you. And you yeah. really got to have your, I guess if you're like, a, I, I do know some super phenoms that were total shit shows like younger guys, but you know what I'm saying? And yeah, so it was great. And ultimately I stuck with bike racing for so long because of the life experience and the traveling, you know, I wouldn't have been able to travel that much. I, I, I've been to so many amazing places on a shoestring on some like low budget team that just barely got us there. And I couldn't have done, done that on my own. And there are a lot of really cool characters. You know, I'm not connected to the bike racing scene at all. I don't even own, like I, it is a, long lost identity I, I don't own the only bicycle i own is an electric commuter i would love to have these like this these new fancy downhill mountain bikes those like electric it's like a dirt bike <laughs> but those things are cool because that's how i got into biking was through free riding and downhill riding in high school working at a bike shop and and i was i was working at a bike shop and i ended up dropping out of college for a while and and i was like super into free riding and i wasn't super good at it but i i liked it and then at this bike shop there were a bunch of road bike geeks and like fixie geeks and 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 i had been you know rowing like crew like like uh you know rowing shells i had been doing that throughout high school as well on like that was like my like high school sport and and so i had a taste of endurance and then when I dropped out of college for a while working at the spy shop, they convinced me to get a, a, a skinny tire fixie. And I was blown away by how fast it was compared to like a three inch fat tire downhill bike. It was just a game changer. 
and and I just loved it. I was like, oh my god! I like push on the pedal, and all of a sudden I fly, and and that's how I got into road road racing. And that, you know, I talked about how how I that's how I channeled my energy. Um, but yeah, it just it was it was it was an incredible experience, and it it it, it set me up for where I'm at right now. And I and I give my full gratitude to that experience. Yeah, that's awesome. That's awesome. Well, uh, I know speaking of Mark Twight, he had mentioned uh, a friend in Seattle had gone to the uh, the autonomous zone when they had kind of had the whole. I don't even know what to what to call it, but uh, I, I'm kind of an anarchist myself. Like, I, you know, I, I definitely I definitely uh, have the same vibes as you and a rules there that doesn't make sense. I won't follow it, <laughs> you know, but I'm curious if you were the friend that Mark was talking about and what you thought, if you were the friend of the autonomous zone in Seattle. Yes, I was the friend and I was talking with Mark at the time. I haven't talked to Mark in a while. I sent him an email. I was in a really like manic identity crisis in COVID where I was like trying to be a million different people. I'd like given up on film. I was like, I'm going to be a, I'm going to be this, I'm going to be that. And I just wrote in this super manic email and I haven't heard from him. But at the same time, I also kind of needed that rejection because we have very different worldviews. I'm like, I don't like guns. I don't like violence. Like, I don't like to, I've learned a lot from him and I have mad respect for him. And I, and I also feel like distance makes the heart grow fonder. And, and I kind of gotten over these like dad complexes of like needing to look up to these like older guys to make me feel like, like, I'm worthy of existence because Mark Twight likes me. It's like, fuck off. It doesn't matter if he likes me or not. Like it it just like, it doesn't matter if anyone likes my film. And so that was kind of a good breath of fresh air to be like, you know what? It really doesn't matter if Mark Twight likes me or not. And maybe one day we'll reconnect. And, you know, and I feel really fortunate that there were, there was a time period where he did really like me and he gave me a lot of amazing advice. And, and I, I learned a lot from that situation and as far as the autonomous go, is yeah, that whole that whole uprising happened two blocks from where I live. Like it was nuts. So, and I actually had eye surgery, uh, uh, like really invasive eye surgery, and I was blind for four days with like crazy, crazy um, pain for for four days when it got really wily. And it was wily for a while. And so, you know, once, once my sight returned, then I, I wouldn't say I participated, but I definitely observed. And I think that the reasons for it were absolutely justified. But again, to me, yelling and violence and hostility on either side of the fence just doesn't turn me on. And uh, to me, it's just like, all you're doing is just handing back the same pile of shit back and forth, back and forth, back and forth. And I don't know what the answer is. I don't know how to end warfare. I don't know how to end exploitation. I don't know how to end oppression. And and uprisings and rebellions have had success. But I would just love for another way. And I don't know if there is another way. I think that, like, like, there's a lot of things about Mark Twight that I don't agree with, like what he idolizes. But this one thing in one of his books that I have, it's like one of his art magazines. It, I don't remember the exact quote, but all... I'll, I'll paraphrase it by saying that like the, the purest form of like rad, radicalism or art or it's almost like the, the most powerful form of like anarchism and rebellion 
is creation, not destruction. And, and so like this whole anarcho mentality of like, burn it all down. Like that's so wasteful. Like that is so wasteful from a research standpoint to fucking burn everything down. Like go fuck yourself, you know? <laughs> but yep. to me, it's, you have to mutate it. You have to, you have to recreate it. You have to create something new. And, and, and that's, that's this whole mentality of mutation of evolving something. And, and that's why I feel like, because like in conservation right now, right, these nonprofit groups that I'm affiliated with and do a lot of volunteer work for, yes, we do rallies, but in some of the rallies, I don't know, I just don't like, we're not really shouting, but it's like chanting and stuff. And to me, I'm like, this just feels like it's just pissing people off. But then we have other rallies that are more like, um, they're more, uh, it's like going to a concert with a bunch of people who have been involved in policy reform for 30 years you know like people that have been in the conservation game for decades and decades and decades and decades and they're sharing that experience and it's very empowering and i really like that but i ultimately think that like a lot of i think that like if people really if you want to change something then you need to get involved in politics you need to get involved in policy reform you can't just go on the street and start yelling and that's just my own approach um but at the same time it's like I don't know, like, I don't know how I would react. I have a tendency to, like, avoid violence at all costs. But, so, you know, but there's this whole mentality that, like, sometimes you can't avoid it. And if you can't avoid it, you need to be fucking ready. You need to be trained. <laughs> you know, and uh, that shit just, I'm just like, I just don't want to, I don't want to, like, put all of this time and energy for training for this unknown situation that could potentially occur. It's like, if it occurs, like whatever, if I fucking die, I'm just going to be reincarnated. Right. Like yep. that's my belief. So I'm, I'm almost of the opinion of just like, I'd rather just get fucking shot and die than, than, than try to figure out how to like not get shot and not die and put yeah. all this time and effort. And anyway, so yeah, it was a really strange experience. And, and, and yeah, dude, like, police are brutal and it's really fucked up the shit they do. And, and I have no respect for it whatsoever. And, and I'm not saying all cops are bad or anything like that. Like, I just don't even want to have this conversation. Like humans can be brutal and I, yeah. and, and, and it, and it's heartbreaking. I don't care what uniform you're wearing, what outfit you're wearing, what demographic you're from or anything. It's like, if you're brutal, you're brutal. And I have no respect for you. And yeah, that's, I, that's where I draw the line. Yeah. I think my, my curiosity was, is more like less protest and less violence and more like, like autonomy, like, you know, the startings of it yeah. seemed like where they took the block over, like, and I think uh, you were saying like with the artist collective, that's almost a, uh, that's almost an, an anarchistic autonomous zone in a way. Whereas I was thinking that, you know, like when I first saw Seattle, I was like, oh, they're, you know, I could see how they set things up. And I think that the only way forward is, is forging community and bonds. And I was just curious yeah. because they, they ended up vilifying that entire autonomous zone where, you know, like, you know, there was murders yeah. and shootings. And, and I was like, no, show me like, show me what is you know show me the community show me you know because yeah. i mean we have a group here that is uh the boise kitchen collective and every wednesday they have a distribution down at the skate park where the homeless usually you know the the, the unhoused people usually in camp 
and they catch a lot of flack for it, but they're the only people that are taking direct action to solve a problem. So I, I look at this yeah. as a community, like this is great. And it sounds like your art community is, is similar to that too. I mean, it's like, you know, yeah. I don't know. It's just humans are messy, man. It's it, humans are so messy and change is messy and growth is messy. And yeah. it just, it can be really confusing. Like, like the autonomous zone was really cool on a lot of levels. It was also really messy. There were some beautiful moments. There was definitely like awesome art happening. You know, it, 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 it had that same villain, that same feeling of Berlin, uh, you know, once the, the wall fell and, and once the war ended where it was just exploding with art, exploding with expression, music in the streets. Like I love graffiti and, and it, yeah, it was just so much community happening and idea sharing and it was also really messy. And often those environments attract like um, flies and, and yep. vultures and like, you know, and like just people that just don't have their shit together whatsoever. And, and that's just that humans are messy right now. Like we have so far to go. And that, I think that's a point. I, I mean, props to anyone who's made it this far in the podcast. But I think that one, <laughs> one thing I've really realized is how much humans have lost track with the time scale of the evolution of consciousness and like yeah we're in a really bad pickle right now with like the rate that we're consuming the earth and all of that but i also feel like in the grand scheme of things like on a on longer time scales we're gonna figure it out and, and we, we still have so far to evolve and it's not going to happen in a year. It's not going to happen in 10 years. Like there's nothing right now in the world to me that is really saying that we're going to get our shit together anytime soon whatsoever. If anything, it's just going to get worse. And I hope that's not pessimistic. But in the long term, we're talking centuries and centuries and centuries and centuries. That's that it's, it's, it's just the micro and the macro as above, so below is yeah. in a single lifetime. You're not going to achieve anything in a year, but give yourself multiple decades and you can achieve greatness. And it's the same with humanity as we've, we've had golden ages. We've had beautiful times. And right now it's just, it's just frustrating because I don't, especially with my job, like I manage, I manage a record label, but I also manage their video archives. And so they have like thousands of videos from the 1960s and seventies consciousness revolution, like some of the rarest footage out there. And so just like the book, The Giver, where, where like that, the, the protagonist and the giver is like immersed in the like every single experience of humanity, They're essentially seeing the darks and everything. I often feel like that in the archive. It's just, I, 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 I've seen the revolutions of the 70s and it's really bizarre to see where we're at right now, 50 years later and all the struggles with and to see the parallels of like, have we grown like, are we in the same place that we were 50 years ago? And and to see all these like awkward idealists in the 70s. And sometimes I get really jaded of being like, are we growing? Are we evolving? But ultimately, like with these radicals in the 70s and these radicals at the autonomous zone and Capitol Hill and what was that, 2019 or 20 or whenever it was, they're at least trying. They're trying. And, and that's what I always have to remind myself is that we have to try and we have to innovate and we have to take risks. And there are going to be people that are doing it boldly and, and thoughtfully and thoroughly. And then there's going to be people that just tag along and kind of create messes. 
and 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 I don't know how or when humanity is ever going to be on the same level. Like when is when is everyone going to stop littering? You know, why does <laughs> right. it? Why is it? Why? Do, yeah. Why does twenty percent of the population clean up litter and the other eighty percent litters? You know, it's like when will that? I I don't know any answers at all but i also try not to get too sucked into the zeitgeist at the time and remember that like civilization is on the spectrum of eons not years yeah and it's like we were saying too earlier about shaman you know Mm -hmm. like we have to look at it like what was it 16 1600 i mean 14 to 1600 there was there was shamans i mean that that's not too far away from where we're at now i mean exactly (laughs) we forget the past so easily yeah we forget yeah yeah Yeah, like 500 years ago is not that long ago it's just yeah yeah so i think that's a healthy thing to to remember it's i i think is that goes along with the thought of like you said, how, how long is it going to take? You look at the industrial revolution. I don't think we've hit the top of the bell curve to come back down to where we can look at ways to regenerate things. I think, I think we're going to have, unfortunately, I think people only learn through experience and direct experience where most people haven't touched the hot stove yet. You know, they're, they, you know, there's people at, at different latitudes that cannot, exist in the same latitude that they existed in for a millennia so it's going to take us seeing this firsthand and go okay well now we need to start looking at you know regenerative things and and just different ways of life i mean even the basics of like commuting to a job is weird to me like you know like driving two hours and and doing something that might be complete bullshit is that job going to exist in the future (laughs) you know like there's a lot of there's a lot of conversations we're going to have to have because i think if people draw identities to like what they do or what they work or their education you know and i think that's once you take that away it's it's really hard i think what did Fromm say the philosopher you you know the freedom to and the freedom from, you know, there people look at that. Like that's how Nazism was born. You know, when people were free from the oppressed, oppressive regimes, they had no way to have a life story. So they fell into this authoritarian, you know, and I think that's kind of where we're at now is we have the freedom to do a lot of cool shit, but, if you take the freedom from something, you have to fill it with, with something creative or else you just, you're fucked. So, yeah, totally, man. So, well, well, my head, my headphones just died. So maybe, maybe that's a sign. Yep. That is a, <laughs> that is a sign from the universe that we should be done. And I am sorry for taking so much of your time, but no, was... dude, I'm here for it, man. Okay. Definitely a cool conversation. I appreciate uh, your take on everything and just keep fucking making art, man. Cause we need it. <laughs> Thanks. All I appreciate right. you, Ralph. Thanks All for right. reaching out. Yeah, for sure. Take care. If you're listening to this after listening to the podcast, I appreciate it. If you fast forwarded, you cheated, but anyway, uh, this was such a great episode to record with him. I had been trying to get him on for quite some time and um, just conflicting schedules and 
generally just being busy with with life but you really need to go check out his artwork it's pretty amazing you know watch watch some of his films and uh look at the images and he's a a really exceptional talented artist for for creating visual visual masterpieces i think and i'm really excited for his uh upcoming project i can't wait to see that take shape so thanks again for listening and uh if you could follow on spotify and subscribe on apple and reach out if you have any guest ideas or you know somebody that is a contrarian and just living life to the rhythm of a different drum so always looking for different people to talk to and as always i appreciate you and thanks for listening